You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 63 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Bob, and welcome to the booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York. Library Pros Podcast is a bi-monthly podcast, so please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find podcasts. And please check us out on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Library Pros. Consider leaving a rebelling about us because word of mouth is the best way to help our podcast listenership grow. Okay, so today joining us, he's actually in studio. We actually have an in-studio guest today. Is Associate Professor Charles Guaria? Yes. Guaria. All right. So... Charles is from Long Island University's Brooklyn campus, and Charles um, entered the library profession in 1998, where he began his career working for Lehman Brothers in New York City, which I find very interesting. And, uh, and then he was promoted to assistant vice president. And in 2004, he joined LIU as a library faculty member and is currently an associate professor working in the acquisitions department. He's published several journal articles on topics of economics and libraries, and is a three-time winner of the Emerald Group's Publishing Highly Recommended Award. Highly Commended Award. If I could read, it would be important, right? <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks. So we're going to speak with – can we call it Charles or Chuck? Would you rather? Uh, Chuck is fine. Chuck is fine. Okay. We're going to speak with Chuck uh, about the core concepts of his book, Proposition 13, America's Second Great Tax Revolt, A 40-Year Struggle for Library Survival, and how his proposition – how this proposition – has changed the landscape for libraries in California and how libraries can manage a budget under these harsh government budgeting priorities and what librarians can do as activists to influence lawmakers. But first, let's get to know Chuck. All right. So, Chuck, tell us about where you received your library science degree. Uh, I went to Queens College, um, started there in uh, 1996. I graduated in the uh, fall semester of 98 was my last semester. Okay, and so uh, tell us about Lehman Brothers. How'd you get a job there? Uh, well, believe it or not, uh, this is in 1996, right? Pre uh, pre web explosion. I actually saw the ad on a on a corkboard with a push pin that Lehman Brothers was hiring. Wow, <laughs> I know, right? That's pretty cool. <laughs> and um, so I applied for the job. It was a library assistance job, and uh, I applied uh, for the job. They hired me and uh, it was actually uh, uh, pretty great because they paid for uh, my master's degree so it worked out really well they were very good when it came to uh, letting people go early for class and things of that nature wow and he got his library degree paid for Bob how about that yeah that's all right that's a heck of a find on a bulletin board yeah it was uh, it was fortuitous yeah it was wow. a, an interesting experience I, I was not there when it crashed um, I, I think probably the reason they crashed is they let me go but because <laughs> <laughs> they were paying for they were paying for a library science degree <laughs> yeah right because they paid for everybody's library <laughs> and you probably had the secret sauce to make them stay afloat yes too. <laughs> um, so let's jump forward a little bit okay. you're an associate professor at, at LIU's Brooklyn campus right yes Yes. So when did you start there, and what areas do you enjoy teaching? Okay, um, I started there in 2004. So there was a round of layoffs at, um, at, uh, at Lehman, and uh, I was let go. And uh, in 2004, uh, I landed at uh, Long Island University. Um, 
it, it's a wonderful place. The, uh, the job is great. We are faculty, which is why I have the associate professor uh, title. Uh, I am an acquisitions librarian, so I don't get in front of the class tool. I don't get in front of a class too often. I'm, I'm not, uh, we have instruction librarians. Uh, public service is uh, doing instruction as well. Um, there, there's uh, a few folks who will ask uh, for me to teach their class uh, every semester, you know, two or three. But mostly I'm in uh, the back offices managing the budget line and uh, handling uh, streaming video and things like that. Streaming video okay. is fun. Yeah, Canopy. Yeah. Do you guys have Canopy? Yes, we have Canopy. Yes. We do. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. It's great. I would imagine there's probably a, an academic version and a uh, public library version. Does anybody know? Hmm. I'm not, I'm not so sure, sure if there are two different versions, but I know that we're our people are using it. Yeah, we get a lot that. of requests for it. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so uh, tell us about uh, what well, we're going to talk about your book uh, in the next segment. But what drew your interest to this Proposition 13 issue and its impact? Uh, so I was uh, in the process of researching. I was working with with, with a colleague of mine, and we were uh, we were co-writing an article on the uh, recession and how it affected libraries. And while we were doing that work, we kept on seeing two states come up as uh, always having financial uh, funding problems. One was Ohio, and the, and the other one was California. So we had decided, you know, I'll take one, you'll take the other. She became the library director, which is an administrative position, so she didn't have to write anymore, you know, publish for tenure. Uh, I decided just to look into California and uh, saw that everything tied back to Proposition 13, which which is a theme actually, not just for library funding, but for just about anything that goes wrong in California. It is the scapegoat. Um, you know, if if your light, uh, street light on the corner of your block is out for more than you think it should be, you call up your local your local government. They can say, well, that's Proposition 13. We don't have money anymore, so it's going to take us longer to fix it. And that's gone on really for the 41 years almost of the book of the uh, of the law. That's tragic. Yes. <laughs> Very tragic. Yes. Yeah. Well, holy um, cow! If you're against the law, then yeah, then that's that's. It's 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 a scapegoat. That's that's just incredible. I mean, well, it, we certainly we certainly know what drew his interest to Proposition Thirteen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, that's, that's I, I can't wait to talk about maybe drawing comparisons to the New York State tax cap too. Um, you don't know much. Of, so in New York State, um, there's a tax cap of two percent or cost of living, whichever is less, oh, on all municipalities. So they can't raise their budget more than two percent of the cost of living, whichever right. is less. Yeah. So I wonder, we'll talk about that later. Okay. But uh, we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about Proposition 13 and its impact on California and in library land in general. So we'll be back in just a moment. back with Charles Gualia from the LIU Brooklyn campus. There you go. We had a headphone malfunction. Are we back or are we not? We back? are back. <laughs> it sounds like we're back. So let's talk about what California Prop 13, um, you know, 
from 1978. It was from 1978. So what was your inspiration about, you know, this prop from 40 years ago? Like you said before, it's still kind of alive, right? Yeah, the proposition is still alive. It's still the law um, in California. And I honestly, you know, when I, when I looked into it, I didn't have this idea of I was gonna, going to write a book. I was just looking for the next research project. Uh, and there are so many different ways you can go. When I was uh, getting all my sources together, I actually ended up with over 500. I think it was like 586 different sources. And uh, 240 of them made the book. So it's a highly referenced, cited book. Um, I, I have written about the economy, so uh, that's really where my interest lied. I just figured this was another, uh, another finance, economic issue that I could write about. And I just told people I'm writing until I stop and whatever I have, I have, and it ended up to be a book. So, uh, go ahead, Bob, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, I'm fine, I'm good. Oh, no, I, I wasn't sure if you wanted to go to the next question or if you wanted to, we have... Oh, yeah, you can go with the next go question, ahead. sure. You sure? I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is Proposition 13 and what and who brought it about? Um, Proposition 13 is, at its core, it is a property tax cut, and it cut taxes uh, 57% um, within California. Passed in 1978, it rolled back the assessment value to 1975, and the uh, percentage of your tax would be 1% of the assessed value of your property. Uh, this is both for commercial and residential. Uh, going forward, there, it would be uh, adjusted for the cost of living, never to exceed 2%. There was also uh, a stipulation that went outside of just property taxes, and uh, the stipulation was any new tax or any increase in an existing tax needed a supermajority, the two-thirds vote of both uh, houses uh, of, the state of the state legislator legislative bodies. Um, also, in certain situations, the voters had to pass with a supermajority for the tax, for a new tax or for a tax to be increased. Uh, so you asked about the people involved. The, there were two people who really drove this. One, uh, Howard Jarvis, and the other is Paul Gann. Uh, they had similarities on certain things, and they were an odd couple on other things. Um, Neither one of them were originally from California. Both uh, tried to get uh, into political life but lost every time that they ran. And uh, they were both super successful, though, uh, in, in business. Um, they came together on this topic. They came together down the road again for other, for other tax reasons. But once this was passed, they actually were sniping at each other in public. Howard, Howard Jarvis would... Uh, uh, accuse uh, Paul Gann of wanting to be a highly paid official for tax movements, and Paul said that wasn't true and insulted the intelligence of, of uh, Howard Jarvis. Um, as it turned out, Jarvis was incredibly gregarious and became a celebrity. He almost won uh, um, Time Magazine's Man of the Year. And I want to point out that, you know, in 78, it was called Man of the Year, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he almost won that. I think he, he was a runner-up, but he did get on the cover. He was on the Johnny Carson show. Uh, he was doing public speaking both within California and outside of California. He met Margaret Thatcher. He was like a, a big, a big uh, personality. In fact, he was in the movie Airplane. 
Really? Yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. I don't, he if if um, when you watch the movie, uh, there's a guy in a cab. It's a running joke throughout the movie. There's mm-hmm. a guy in a cab. Uh, the meter's running, and he's waiting for the driver of his cab to come back. And they keep on going back to the scene in the movie. Um, he is the guy in, in, in the cab waiting. Oh, so, that's pretty f- yeah. ironic, right? Yeah. It's funny. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. And if anybody out there has not seen the movie, I recommend it. It's actually a very good movie. Uh, so on the, other, on the other side, Paul Gann uh, was very quiet. He didn't, uh, he didn't get that uh, – he didn't have that big personality – um, and uh, on a sad note, Paul Gann's life um, actually uh, was cut short. He actually acquired AIDS uh, through a blood transfusion. So this is 1982. He had, oh, wow. he had a bypass, and uh, he, um, blood was not, not uh, screened then. And um, he lived you know, for seven years, and he said that he had a new crusade, right? And that was to advocate for AIDS patients. And he said it was the gravest responsibility of his life. Um, he was not successful in getting, in getting the legislation he wanted passed. But, but once, uh, a year after he had, uh, he had left us, they actually did pass a law in California under his name called the uh, Paul Gann Blood Safety Act that required doctors to uh, discuss with their patients the risks of a blood transfusion. Well, that's some that's some tangled web, huh? Yes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Holy cow. So, what did it? What did Prop 13 do to libraries in California? Okay. Well, the highlight number is a uh, 65%. Um, library. The, the worst case scenarios. Library budgets were cut as high as 65% immediately after the uh, law was passed. Um, I, I don't want to come off as all doom and gloom. Uh, some some budgets were just in single digits. You know their cuts. Um, but what this did do is it forced directors to submit multiple budgets. You know, they had to, they had to put on the table because uh, nobody knew what was going to happen next, right? So in preparation of what might happen, they needed to submit budgets that were 5% less than what was the year before, 10%, 15%. There are some uh, library districts that submitted six or seven budgets just, just in preparation of what might happen. Uh, they were things that were under consideration were were uh, charging fees, even though the California Library Association was pushing libraries not to do that. Uh, charging fees, um, using uh, get, firing library library clerks, and using volunteers, or firing the library clerk and having the librarians do the work of of the uh, of the clerks. Um, reevaluating programs was under consideration from a cost effectiveness standpoint. Uh, I know we focus mostly on public libraries, but this also affected universities and community colleges. Uh, so the community co- the state was under a, um, a hiring freeze, and so community colleges could not hire, uh, fill their positions within libraries. Uh, so let me see. Uh, a lot of this was really dependent on how much of your budget came from property taxes because remember we're just talking about property taxes so if your budget was coming from state income taxes let's just say you may not have been affected as badly but some libraries 90-95% of their budget was was property taxes uh, I could tell you that the state immediately afterwards uh, was willing to bail out local governments 
but they saw this as an opportunity because I had the power of the purse strings now because we're going to give you money, so you're going to do you know, what we want. Um, so the bailout really didn't help libraries. And this makes perfect sense, even though they were pulling a power play on the local governments. The state government said, okay, we're going to give you money to, to close that budget gap, but you have to prioritize fire and police. And that makes sense, right? Right. Yeah. So, so libraries, parks... Um, um, my example before of, of like a, a light going out in the street, those things were pushed down secondary, uh, even with the bailout money that the state provided. It's, it sounds kind of, um, as much as this sounds like gloom and doom, there were supporters, obviously, because it passed. Yes. So um, the reason why it passed, uh, there, were, there were two things going on there. Number one, California, California was property taxes were out of control versus the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, the people saw the state government as bloated and ineffective, and I think to a certain degree uh, they were right. Um, the government could not tell the people how much money it had. So, so I referred to that bailout. Mm-hmm. The government had tons of money. They didn't know how much. Like it, one time they would say it was you know, three billion. Another time they would say it was five. The rate it ranged between three and six billion, right? So the people are saying, "Wait a second, we're getting our property taxes are sky high, and you got so much money, you don't know how much you have." They don't even have a proper accounting. Yeah. Wow. So, so they're like, "This is you know, this is this is inefficiency," and politicians were going around saying. You know, you can't cut taxes. You have to vote no on this because it's going to cause chaos. But the people felt like, you know what? This is going to be our chaos. It's chaos created by us if it were to happen. Even police and fire, before they knew they were going to be able to keep their jobs, they were telling, they were telling politicians, they said, listen, my house is more important. These taxes are too high. So you right. combine the inefficiency of the government, you, you combine the taxes being too high. They felt like, I could find another job, you know, but I got a family. I got I to gotta have my house. And, and when they heard that, when, when a politician would say, you know, this is going to be chaos, all they saw, all the politicians saw were smiling faces because like, the people just didn't care. They wanted it. And across the board, it, it, I think there were maybe three districts, voting districts, that didn't pass it. Wow, it, it sounds. And Bob, see, tell me if I'm wrong. Sounds eerily similar of, of the tax cap we have in, have in New York now, too. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, there's a there's a ton of similarities between uh, even even passing. Like, if you go higher than the tax cap, even the passing regulations sound exactly pretty much yeah, the same. Yeah, majority, and that's with yeah. the, with regard to our budget votes okay. here. So, it, it, if you need to, what they call piercing the cap, mm-hmm. uh, you have to have a supermajority. Right. So sounds like somebody found a blueprint from 1978 and uh, and invoked it. And a lot of places have done that. And you know what? And sometimes rightfully so because their budgets, you know, couldn't account for that. And they have a lot of people using the library and they need to keep it staffed so their community supports them. It's true. Okay, Bob, you're up. Yeah. So how did librarians oppose Prop 13 prior to it becoming a law? And I guess once passed, what actions did they take regarding budgets, personnel, service, you know, grassroots campaigns? What can be learned from that as we go? Well, the uh, the strategy that libraries used was to make the the community aware of what they were going to lose. Um, you know, you are going to lose this branch. You're going to lose this service. 
um, the San Francisco Public Library was telling people that even their main library was going to close, which was an idle threat because after it passed, they didn't close their main library. But, <laughs> but they, um, they created uh, – the, the San Francisco Public Library created bookmarks. They created posters, uh, put signs up to make people aware of the ramifications of, um, of Proposition 13. Uh, but it, it wasn't only just uh, you know big libraries uh, that were facing this problem. Small ones, uh, I point to uh, Carpinteria. It's a small uh, city just outside of Santa Barbara. Uh, they had like two part-timers, and, and, and the director was saying, you know, I'm going to lose my two part-timers. We might have to close. So it was, across the board, uh, large libraries and small libraries were being affected by this. Um, once it was passed, uh, how did it affect... Uh, budgets. A lot of they just basically cut services. Hours of operations were reduced. Um, outreach programs were gone. Bookmobiles were gone. They did start to charge fees. I think more of the fees were uh, for if somebody came from outside their district and wanted to use the library more than you know inside the district. Um, they didn't hire people. Uh, the clerks were fired. Uh, uh, librarians did take on additional work. Some directors got rid of their director title and became and, and took a librarian's title to save money. Deferred maintenance, you know, your BNG, your buildings and grounds uh, deferrals, deferred construction, or possibly thinking smaller, like re, instead of having such a, if you're going to open a new building and you had designs for X amount of feet, you do X minus now because you weren't going to have the money. So those were some of the ramifications. I do like to point out, you know, the good stuff as well. There was an opportunity for, for uh, community uh, 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 pulling together. Um, Chula Vista School District actually had a Proposition Plus night, which was a talent show. Uh, to raise money for the children's library in, in Chula Vista. And they got the San Diego Chargers involved. Uh, they got a local radio station involved. And they were able to raise, in today's dollars, it was like, uh, in today's dollars, it was $3,500 to buy books for the children's library. Well, you know, it, just backtracking for a second, here in New York, depending on how your library charter is, whether you're created under the education law or town law, your budget comes from a different place. Do you know how they did it in California? Was it just purely property taxes and each library had their own budget vote? Or was it something that was town-based or county-based or something like that? Um, it wasn't purely property taxes. Uh, that, would be, that, that depended on the district. But exactly you know, when they voted or how they voted, I'm not 100% sure. Okay, so you don't know if you know, it was a town budget that got approved or, or declined and then the library got their funds from the town versus there being their own separate entity, government agency? Well, there are, t there, there are county libraries, town libraries. They even have special districts in, in California, mm -hmm. which is uh, an area set up just for a specific, a specific um, you know, cause, uh, and sometimes the library would be in that special district. Okay, so I'm thinking maybe San Francisco is covered under the city budget and they get their portion of the city budget. Right, yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's not different from like New York Public or something like that. Right. Okay. Um, so what were the pros and cons of the law and where does it stand today all these years later? Um, I'm going to take the last part of that first. Where it stands today, it's actually back on the books um, in November of next year. So November 2020, the commercial aspect of Proposition 13 will be voted on again. And... Uh, Let's uh, let's say, for example, let's look at the residential aspect. Let's say 
me, let's say Chris, Chris and Bob, you guys are our neighborhood, right? Mm -hmm. And um, you have identical houses. And I want to move in, and Chris, you're selling. And so you sell your house to me. Mm -hmm. Let's say this is 1983. You sell your house to me. Okay. At that point of sale, the house gets reassessed. I'm paying 1983 taxes. Bob is still paying taxes for 1975, right? Because they rolled, they rolled, it passed in 78, they rolled the assessment back to 75. Sounds like a welcome neighbor. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Yeah, right. So it, there was an imbalance there. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now take that to the commercial side. All right. Businesses don't generally move as much as people do. Think about your own neighborhood. And the businesses are proud to say, I've been here 20 years, I've been here 30 years. Well, there was a business that in California that had been there 30 years, 2008, 30 years after this passed, and they're paying 1975 taxes because unless it sells, there's no reassessment. So they stay under the old assessment. Yeah, and from the beginning, the people who were against this didn't like that, right? And, and said that was not fair. It doesn't graduate over time. Right. Yeah. So um, it's back on the books in November. No, sorry, it's back on the ballot in November uh, to change that part. And I think the reassessment, the reassessment, if it passes, will be every every three years. Wow, it doesn't sound that there's dissimilar from what's happening in Nassau County right now. Really? Yeah. They're, they're actually reassessing, God, it's the fourth or fifth time since they had their initial reassessment. Wow. And um, I know every time that they did it, they there was always some inequity somewhere mm -hmm. where, you know, they mislabeled property or it was unimproved land that was attached to improved land that was owned by the same, the same person. And, um, they would, they lumped the two together and took the unimproved land and, and reassessed it as improved land. And mm. so a whole big nightmare. Um, yeah. I guess that's what happens when you, for in Nassau's case, they brought in a company, I think from Ohio and who didn't understand how necessarily the nuances of how it worked here hmm. when they did the reassessment. Um, it kind of missed the mark. Yeah. Um, I wonder if that was the case in California, too, to a certain degree. I know that uh, they felt that they were being, the, on the residential side, they felt that they were being uh, uh, assessed far too often. That was part of the problem. Yeah, and just the fact that you recessed it at the date of purchase as opposed to keeping it, you know, at that assessment rate, which isn't mm -hmm. fair either, but there has to be some kind of graduation between the two. Right. Because if you're keeping your tax rate in 1975 and you bought the house in 75 and now you're paying 75 taxes in 2019, that's not equitable either. Right. Your, your, your tax base is practically zero. You can look at it like you're paying next to nothing compared to your neighbor who can have the same house. So getting into the pros and cons, a lot of people feel that's a pro. Right? People who like the law we'll say that stabilized neighborhood. Especially if you lived there in 1975. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and those folks, I mean, they're quoted in the book. Those folks will say, it's like, we know it's not fair, but, you know, at the time, uh, and these are, these are people who work, you know, public, you know, I have a quote from librarians, I have a quote from teachers who are like, you know, at the time, we just, like the police and the fire, we just needed to keep our house. And, and everything else that happened afterwards was, was not really that high on, 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 on their list of priorities. Um, but people who are pro the uh, the law w will say that that stabilized neighbor and saved the elderly, which is something Jarvis Howard Jarvis wanted. The elderly were able to stay in their homes. Fixed income, if the property taxes continue to go up, they would not be able to stay. Uh, if you're against the law, 
uh, you will say, yeah, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, I wouldn't be able to move in in our example, right, because nobody's ever selling. Uh, so a young family can't move in uh, into, into the uh, states uh, or into a new neighborhood. Another pro uh, on the business side, um, they think it's business friendly, the people who are pro this law because the tax base is so low. And, and, and on the, obviously, at the other side, we already went over the con to that. Uh, people who like the law will tell you that it forced government to be more efficient. Uh, folks who don't will look at... Folks who don't will say, well, efficiency means layoffs. Efficiency means reduced public services. Efficiency means deferred maintenance we don't really think that's efficient you know so that's of course where libraries come in the pro and the con and libraries um, for, um, those who like the law will say well libraries were reforced to think their operations but then again the same thing as, as the efficiency uh, the efficiency aspect of this uh, folks will say well rethink means canceling the bookmobile or rethink means we don't have an outreach program anymore so is that really good rethinking so that's basically where, and this is has gone on from before. These arguments were going on before it was actually a law. Uh, you know, the pros and the cons of what this was going to do and have not really stopped it all the way through. Um, I think that could sum up the pros and the cons. Well, it almost sounds like, um, and it's only my, only my own personal opinion, you know, it's like kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. If it's, if it's state government that's not using their money efficiently, libraries seem to be you know, just a tail to that and not necessarily the main body of it. And they kind of got dragged along with this as well. Isn't that true? Yes, I would say that is true. Because yeah, mm -hmm. here in New York, one of the things is um, it's, it's property taxes, obviously. It's school mm -hmm. district taxes, which is the bulk is 60 to 70 percent of our taxes, at least here mm -hmm. in Suffolk and Nassau County. And um, originally, the 2 percent tax cap was supposed to be instituted on school districts. But in essence, it was then turned to any municipality so your local, your town, your village, your library district, your school district, um, your fire district, everybody who derives some type of revenue from property taxes, your ambulance corps, all that police, they, they all um, were subject to it when, in fact, the original intent was for the school districts to have that 2% tax cap. Right. So like anything else, you know, the best intentions of a law being drafted versus what usually comes out at the end is some two different things. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I think that, you know, that can get into, um, you know, a, a smaller political group, the libertarians who want who, who preach a small government and would say that that's government overreach and, uh, and, and are highly against taxes. Um, so I, I think they would point to that as a prime example of what's wrong with government. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't you agree about that, Bob? They, for sure. But you know what? They just don't seem to – across the board, they don't – big government doesn't seem to think about that type of community space or place, what's going to happen to them with these laws when they're passed. And that's the whole thing. Yeah. I mean it, it's it, – it's, like I said before, throwing the baby out with the bathwater and, and kind of lumping everybody together when not everybody has a robust budget like some of the school districts or you know some of the, even some of the towns, at least here in Suffolk, don't have the budget you think – they do. Yeah. So they do a lot with a little. So and they have, you know, DPW and, and a lot of high expenses there with, you know, trucks and labor and all that other stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it it is that ripple effect. Right. Yeah, and what and what happens here, right? They cut our funding just about every year, right? And then we mm -hmm. make we go up to Albany, we make a ton of noise and they reinstate most of it or all of it. 
Right. Except the, this year was a little bit of a different. Yeah, this year was a little bit different. <laughs> Quite a bit different. Yeah, they what they do? They cut the construction budget, right? Yeah, but you know what? It's almost like they do it, and then if we make enough noise, eh, okay, we'll give you some little bit, you know. But we shouldn't have to fight for for aid that the community needs, you know. Right, and here in New York State, we're fortunate here on Long Island because um, you know our budgets are a little bit bigger, and we have people who pay property taxes. When you go to some of the rural places in New York State where it's mostly agrarian, you have, mm -hmm. you know, farmers who have tax exempt status and, you know, these libraries are deriving their funding from from property taxes are basically coming out with almost nothing because of the exceptions they have for farming. So what we get in New York State aid on top of that property tax um, assessment that comes in, sometimes libraries are living off just that, that, that small morsel that comes from New York State and mm. not from, from property taxes. So it's those libraries that, that really take a hit. And those are, quite frankly, the libraries that need the services the most. Well, uh, do you know the libraries uh, upstate, have they considered or do they charge fees at all or are they just adamantly against that? It depends on, it, it, like anything else, you know, it depends on each library and what they're willing to do or what they're willing to sacrifice in order to make things work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, and, you know, to say upstate is kind of a, it's kind of like a, a, a catch-all because there's Western New York and then there's cities in Western New York and then there's the North Country and the Adirondacks and Central New York and Southern Tier. So although from where we're sitting and all my upstate friends are probably rolling their eyes and screaming at their, <laughs> their, uh, their device right now, um, you know, people from down here kind of lump all of upstate together when really yeah. they're quite different areas depending on where you are. Um, so I've I really found that is is fascinating with talking with colleagues upstate going to you know New York State conferences and things, and um, you know it, it it's hard to say you know some one rural library may be adjacent to another and one may charge fees and one may not, but I know that libraries are always trying to not charge the patrons for anything and a lot of times with New York State you know they're waiting for that that morsel which is really not a big lump coming from the state mm -hmm. for for funding. But that's what they make their bread and butter on. There's some libraries yeah. that are running things on thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year. Wow. So it's it it's always fun to talk to those to those folks up there because you you learn how they do it and how they do it on a shoestring budget and how they're successful and how their community embraces them and, and relies on them and and you really get the true feeling of what it's like to have library service that is needed, you know, in your community. Right. I suppose they have fundraisers like the proposition I, I uh, mentioned. Oh, I'm sure, yeah, I'm they sure they have some car like washes and, and bake sales. And friends of the library yes. and, you know, all that other stuff, too, to help raise funds for them. Uh, but, you know, it's just it, it's always interesting from the perspective of like a, a North Country or a Pioneer or or, you know, Southern Tier or even out west by, you know, Rochester and, you know, where they're. The, the approaches are so different, yet it's all the same. It's the same kind of animal. It's just different type, different species of that animal. Mm -hmm. And this, the the more I read about this, the more it sounded akin to what's happening in New York. Yeah, I can see the similarities. Yeah. So moving on, because we're kind of talking about the same idea with the advocacy that we have here in New York State through NILA, the New York Library Association. Um, how difficult would it be to pass something like that here in New York? I mean, you'd assume you need a similar political climate, right? Yes, you would. Uh, you would need that um, frustration. So the cost-benefit of, of the taxes 
that you're paying and what you get back in benefit, you would need the frustration that they were feeling out there that I am not getting what I'm paying for and you know that feeling of inefficiency within the government and the bloatedness. The, one of the big differences is even uh, when we as uh, a state decide that enough is enough, uh, we don't have initiative and referendum to, to make this change, right? Uh, I think like 26 states do and D.C. does. Um, and oh, by the way, I do point out in the book where other states have done the same thing and kind of get in Washington um, and uh, uh, Portland. Um, uh, it was Washington and, and Maine where they actually also uh, had similar laws, and I talk about that as well. However, here we don't, so our only option is to vote in politicians who would say, I am going to lower your taxes. And what people say in campaign isn't always what they say once they get into office. Exactly. So uh, we don't have that power to grab back and control uh, even if we get to the point where we're fed up with our taxes. Well, you know, you have to think in terms, too, of, like you said, political climate, but also um, political party as well, right? Yes. So Republicans obviously would be less inclined to to enact 13. Am I correct? Uh, the re Republic, no, the Republicans um, were... Well, Howard Jarvis was a, a Republican. He said he wasn't when Proposition 13 uh, came about, but he called himself a former rocked rib Republican. Uh, so I think the Republicans... So... so we're getting into like personal politics here. Um, I don't think either party is very good at, at reining in their spending. That's true. That is true. I, you can look on the federal They're level. They're all painted by the, with the same broad brush. Yeah, there. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think the Republicans kind of mask around as a small government a party, but they're really not. No. Okay. Um, I don't think any party is at this point. No, 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 uh, <laughs> no neither one. Um, I would. So I. So maybe you're right. Maybe the Republicans would not like Proposition 13. Well, I'm just thinking in terms of the, the time frame, too, and, and during that, that time. Who was, who was governor back in 75? Was it, uh, it was Brown or Reagan? It was Brown. It was Brown. Yeah. And, and Brown uh, did the classic flip-flop. He was against it before he was for it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he said it was a rip-off before it became the law, and then when it became the law, he became a, this is a quote, born-again tax cutter. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, he was, you know, he was, I don't know you want to say, so convincing that Howard Jarvis actually campaigned for him. Really? Yeah. And, really? Yeah, and, um, uh, and of course, you know, Brown's a four-term governor. Yeah. Um, Reagan, you brought up Ronald Reagan. Uh, he tried to, to pass property tax law when he was, uh, uh, you know, cut when he was governor. Because he came in in 78, right? No, he was before. He was before. Yeah, oh, he was, he was like before late this. Sixties. Yeah. Oh, okay. Late sixties. Okay. Um, and he tried, and he failed. The government. Uh, Brown tried too. Brown had a uh, uh, a counter to thirteen that I, that was about half as severe, uh, but it was termed uh, too too complicated and too late. Um, when people were given both, they seemed to like Browns more but he was late to the game, and they said it was too complicated for people to understand. Like Jarvis and, and Gann basically went to people and said, your taxes are going to be X in 
if you pass this. And then three years from now, they're going to be this. Like, they had a very clear it was description. a clear formula, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so, so Brown was a governor back then uh, and a Democrat. Yeah. You know, and just thinking about funding and if we were to, you know, do the calculations to see what it would have amounted to if they had enacted something like that today, with all the extra things that libraries are doing, this could really hurt, I think, libraries more now than it did then. And it did hurt libraries then. But now with all the other things that libraries are involved in now, because uh, back then it was more books. They, they, I mean, obviously there wasn't even VHS at the time. Right. It was probably records. Yes. Um, it was mostly paper. But could you imagine how devastating that could be to libraries now? Uh, yes, I could. And uh, that's actually um, a, a great um, point in regards to what uh, can be done now to protect libraries. Right. Uh, um, two years, go back to 1980, Jarvis tried again to get a, a tax cut, and this was going to be state income tax, 50%. Um, unions, public interest groups, libraries got together to defeat it. The Berkeley Public Library I focus on uh, in the book um, changed their tactic, right? And they changed their tactic to say, instead of saying, this is what's going to happen if you pass this, they said to their patrons and their community, here's the good things we do, and, and this costs like, next to nothing. And they figured out it costed each person uh, in their community three cents per day. And for three cents per day, you're getting all these great things from us. So now, to take it to what you just said, what are all the great things that are going on now? Maker spaces, um, there's uh, the Library of Things. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, unique things happen at libraries now, like uh, Jacksonville Public Library in Florida uh, has weddings. Um, and it's actually beautiful. If nobody's ever seen it, go online and take a look. They actually do a great job. Um, so these things that the library is doing, all the not just books, all these great things that they're doing with the community, I think is something before your budget comes up and, and something before there's a tax revolt in, in your community, um, connecting with your community and saying, look at all the great things we do. Because you want that patron to feel that connection to the library. So when they have to go vote for your budget, They'll vote yes, or if there's a problem, maybe they'll think twice about it and go, yeah, maybe not, maybe we shouldn't. You know, you want buy-in from your community to, because of all the great things libraries do. Yeah, I, I just, I'm as you're talking, I'm like, well, what would happen to this? What would happen to this budget line? What would happen there? And it could be, I mean, the 2% cap hurts, mm -hmm. but something like this could actually really, really hurt libraries a lot more. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it's still around today, and they're amending it. Uh, the commercial aspect, the commercial of it, yeah. aspect of it. Yeah, but the the thing there, you know, if they amend it, that means there's going to be billions that are going back into the coffers of the state because businesses will be paying more, right? Right. So it could have a trickle down to libraries because the local government will get more money, and hopefully they would fund their libraries. Uh, it's just it, it's scary to hope for a trickle down. Yes, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> you know, hoping for the. Uh, for the powers that be to say, you know, pass everybody else or, or hand out something to everybody else and still have a slice for the, for the library. Yeah, yeah. Because usually we're overlooked a lot. Yes. Yeah, I can't even imagine. Um, so other than, other than reaching out to the communities, what else did libraries do? I mean... Um, there was a grassroots effort um, in 
it started in Alameda, and it's a good uh, it's a good case study. I actually think like the whole book is a good case study, but it's a good case study. Um, it was called the the it was called in short the coalition, the coalition to restore quality library services, and I go into detail in it. But um, essentially, activism, grassroots campaigns, is uh, is something that libraries can do. Uh, they uh, it was started by a few people who got temporarily laid off, and they got about a hundred a hundred people together uh, to start this this coalition. And they wanted to get the word out on the financial struggles that libraries were going to endure. They started selling T-shirts, took the profits from the T-shirts, and uh, created mailings, created flyers. They did public speaking. They went to Sacramento, the capital, and were lobbying politicians. And at first, actually, the California Library Association wasn't too keen on them, uh, but they came around and actually started to give this coalition space at their annual conference. These folks that started this this grassroots effort were back at work like within three months, but but the coalition lasted for about four years. I could not find any mention of it. In my research, I could not find any mention of it after 1982. But this is um, this type of activism is, is something that libraries can do. Wow, this this is mind blowing. I can't even imagine that this happened. I mean, in, in the in the context of time, I guess you could, or during the times, you know, from the late seven, mid to late seventies, and everything else that was happening. Right. Um, but I can't imagine if this, something like this would happen now. Yeah. Because happen again too. It could. It could. Yeah. It could. I mean, the tax cap came over what about five years ago, six years ago, something like that. Yeah. So it can happen. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of it was this this uh, draconian a way of doing it. It was. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for coming in and talking to us about this. This oh, is really for... interesting, and I'm I'm going to sit down and read the book oh, now great. because it's, it's really me. interesting. Um, and I can't believe that something from 40 years ago is still affecting libraries and any municipality in California to this day. Mm -hmm. um, so when we come back, we're going to be asking Chuck our top 10 library questions or the 032 list, which is the Dewey number for top 10 lists. And as always, we give thanks to Melanie Cardone from the Longwood Public Library for naming the list of questions we ask all our guests. So we will be right back. back with Charles Guerrilla, who will be our next participant in our 032 list. The questions in our list were inspired by Literary Hub, an informative library-related news site that has stories and interviews related to library land. You can see their work by visiting lithub.com and visit their site because they educate and inform library land on great topics from all over the world. Thank you, Literary Hub. Okay, so you ready? I am ready. We won't hold you to the answers, <laughs> okay. but it's just a fun list we like I'm to scared, ask everybody. So. First question, what did you want to be when you were a child? Um, so when I was a child, when I was very young, 
I wanted to be a baseball player. Uh, a little bit, if you want to you know, up that to like around my mid-teens, I wanted to be a rock star. <laughs> <laughs> That's not bad. Um, so what is your first memory of a library and who brought you to the library for the first time? Um, my first memory of a library was uh, I lived in Hapog. So uh, the Smithtown Public Library had a summer reading club and uh, I was a part of that. And uh, my parents, you know, brought me. Um, and again, uh, just moving it into the teen years, uh, I, uh, I'm a huge uh, baseball fan of an out-of-town team, the Cardinals. And I used to go to the Smithtown Public Library every week and read the sporting news uh, to catch up on what the Cardinals were up to because it was no mass media. No, not at all. Yeah. And that was it. So those are my early memories, yes. Okay. So when did you decide to work in a library? And if not... What was your first career path? Because many librarians and staff choose a profession as a, this profession as a second career. Yeah. Well, I almost was a, um, a teacher, and I was doing my student teaching, um, and I was not very good at it. So uh, I actually just quit the program, and um, I was uh, married at the time. She, my, my, my wife was a, uh, a librarian. And she suggested it, and I looked into it, and uh, that's why I was at Queens College because she had she had gone there, and I went there and talked to the director, and I liked the idea of it. So this is always uh, an interesting question we ask our our guests: Who is your favorite fictional librarian? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, uh, who comes to mind is uh, Donna Reed, and it's a Wonderful Life. Um, <laughs> wow, that's a now, great we one. We haven't had that at all. Have think, not right? had Donna Reed. Mary, yeah. <laughs> I had to think yeah. of her name. Wow. And it's a great scene where it's like supposed to be this major tragedy that she became a librarian, you know? <laughs> it, uh, yeah, that's great. I like that one. So what would you be doing if you weren't working in a library or in the library field? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't, I don't know. Um, uh, fighting Prop Thirteen. <laughs> I'm sorry. I said Fighting Prop Thirteen. Yes, that's what I would be doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, 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 um, I love to write. I'm, um, this is not going to be my only book, so I will, I'll pick writer, oh, author. Okay. So, what would you say is your favorite section of the library? Uh, Good question. Well, I like quiet. Uh, so can I say like the quiet room? Sure. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> so if you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to the library? Um, well, sticking with the times, I would probably, you know, thinking of like in our library, I would probably want to put a cafe in there. Uh, Post has one. I don't know if anybody here has been to Post, but Brooklyn doesn't have one. Uh, I think you know that would be good. Um, so what would you say you absolutely love about your library? Uh, the people I work with are tremendous. We've had some, uh, you know, you know, uh, rock star type librarians. Um, so I would say the quality of the people that I work with. Okay. So what is the weirdest, not necessarily worst or horrible, but the weirdest thing that has happened in your library that you've experienced? Um, that's a good question. The weirdest thing. Uh, Oh boy! Got him, Chris. Nice yeah, <laughs> I should have stopped at the Donna Reed answer. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean we've had some, you know, we've had some things that uh, that um, we had to call security for. Uh, so those are horrible. You said not so horrible. I can't think of anything that's weird, funny, really, that's happened in the library. I'll probably think of one like on the drive home. I'll be like, oh, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so who would you say is your favorite regular patron? Right. Um, this actually applies more to uh, – it's not in my bio, but I, I, did, uh, I did work at uh, Dowling College, and I was you know, working reference regularly. I was a visiting librarian working reference there. Um, where I am now, uh, I don't get to the reference desk too often, and it's not a very you – know, it's a rather large – campus compared to Dowling and Dowling was kind of you know it was small and the tagline was it's a personal school uh we had some regulars there that I really liked a lot um they would come I work on Saturdays and, and we had regular Saturday patrons that were great and they would come up and, and talk to us and and um so I liked them a lot uh where I am now when I do get in front of a class you know I do offer a one-on-one if they need it and when they and when the kids come around for that you know we make that connection and when I see them in the halls it, it's really nice because I you know I get to say hi and talk so our last question what are people without library cards missing out on oh well you know a great time everything I, I love libraries they're just uh, awesome places to walk into uh, they're missing out on when we, we mentioned all the things that libraries do now uh, I don't think people are fully aware of that. I was recently interviewed by uh, the California Lawyers Association, and I got that question that we all get, you know, uh, the viability of libraries with Google and things like that. So I went into the things we talked about, Makerspaces, Library of Things. He was eager to hear about it and didn't know it. So if you don't have a library card, there's a very good chance you don't know these things are going on. So you'd be missing out on a lot of what they would view as unique things. We're not just a warehouse of books anymore. Exactly, and that's something that libraries are not necessarily the best at doing is reaching out to the people who don't come into the building. So right. that's, that's, I think, the biggest challenge for libraries now. Yes, yes, yeah. definitely. Okay. So thanks for being such a good sport and answering our, um, our list of questions. You're it's, welcome. It's, it's a lot of fun to do. That yeah, was great. And, and this is great having you on the podcast, so thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks for having me. It's been wonderful. So that is all the time we have for this edition. If you have any questions or comments on our show, visit our contact us section of our website, thelibrarypros.com. We'll have links and photos um, from this episode on the site, and you can visit us on Twitter at, at thelibrarypros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell a friend, because word of mouth is how our listenership grows. So remember, the opinions stated by the Library Pros and the guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and the guests and are not those of the Sachin Public Library, the Emma S. Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. So we will see you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pitbit Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Christofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachin Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.